The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Before we get started, I thought I'd tell you about a novel that I recently read. The author, Christopher Buellman, has no idea that I'm plugging his book. Although the author community is small, I don't know Mr. Buellman, but I do believe that excellent work should be shared. In his novel, Those Across the River, failed academic Frank Nichols and his wife, Eudora, have arrived in the sleepy Georgia town of Whitbrow, where Frank hopes to write a history of his family's old estate and the horrors that occurred there. At first, the quaint rural ways of their neighbors seemed to be everything they wanted, but there's an unspoken dread that the townsfolk have lived with for generations, a presence that demands sacrifice where a long-standing debt of blood has never been forgotten, a debt that has waited patiently for Frank Nichols's homecoming. Those Across the River has everything I like in a scary tale. It takes place in a secluded, rural community. Mr. Buellman sets his story during the turbulent post-World War I era. He writes with a multi-dimensional voice that brings the characters to life. On behalf of us genre fiction lovers, I want to thank Christopher Buellman for his contribution to the world's collection of terrifying tales. I recommend that you pick up a copy of Those Across the River and put it on your nightstand. If you love horror, this book is for you. Today, I plan to lay two stories on you, Legacy Builders Incorporated and Kill the Child. Regarding Legacy Builders Incorporated, Ray Bradbury is perhaps my favorite author of all time. His novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, has the best opening line in all of genre fiction history, in my opinion. The seller of lightning rods came before the storm. If that doesn't inspire to pick up a copy and get reading right now, I don't know what's wrong with you. Legacy Builders Incorporated was inspired by Bradbury's short adventure stories. A couple come to mind as some of his greatest tales. There's the crowd in which a man crashes his car and is thrown clear. Crowd gathers around him. He hears distant sirens, but the crowd closes in so tightly that help can't get through. Could it be that the crowd is just a group of innocent bystanders? Or do they have something more sinister in mind? There's also the scythe, in which a man's car runs dry within sight of a small farmhouse. With no nearby gas station, he leaves his family behind and walks to the house. He knocks. When nobody answers, he heads inside where he finds an old man lying dead in his chair. The old man leaves a will that grants its finder a special relic, a scythe, and a compulsion to harvest wheat. The man picks up the scythe and gets to work, only to find that he's thrashing something other than grain. When it comes to horror, science fiction, and fantasy, Ray Bradbury is the man. I met him once at a college speaking engagement. I couldn't have been older than 17. I looked at him, starstruck, as I waited in line with my copy of R is for Rocket hopeful for an autograph. When I met him, being young and naive, I said, Mr. Bradbury, I've decided to put your song, Frost and Fire, to music. Rather than berate me for not having the legal rights to properly massacre his work with my inadequate-to-say-the-least composition chops, he smiled and said, That's wonderful. He signed my book twice, once on the cover page and a second time on the title page of his story, Frost and Fire. I never put his story to music. I couldn't do it justice anyways. I highly recommend a relatively new anthology of his work entitled Bradbury Stories, 100 of His Most Celebrated Tales. Legacy Builders Incorporated. Written and read 
by Craig Nibo. The plaque on the man with glasses' desk read, Wesley Barrowman, legacy artist. Mr. Barrowman sat perhaps a bit too tall in his chair, perhaps a bit too straight in the spine, perhaps smiling a bit too rigidly. His elbows rested on the arms of the lambskin chair, his hands up in front of him, the tips of his fingers splayed and touching. A clock ticked in the room, consciously loud in the uneasy peace of Mr. Barrowman's office. Dick Landry sat across from Mr. Barrowman, feeling far too away to exactly trust the man whom he had come to see. But Dick suspected that his misgivings lay more in the purpose of his visit than in Mr. Barrowman's overpolished smile. You are not alone, Mr. Barrowman said. There are many, many people in your state out there, walking the streets, punching in at their jobs, having cocktails with friends. The only difference between you and them is that you have decided to secure your legacy, and that's where I come in. Mr. Barrowman spread his hand over a dish of red and white mints. Have a piece of candy, why don't you? You look a bit unsettled. Dick took a mint from the dish. Mr. Barrowman waited the full 30 seconds it took for Dick to unwrap the mint and put it in his mouth. Better? Mr. Barrowman asked. Dick tried a wan smile. It didn't feel right. It's just that I've been so unhappy for such a long time, Dick said. I understand. That is precisely how every client I work with feels. All I can say is that our work is guaranteed. Dick scoffed at this, causing him to choke on the candy. He coughed, then hard swallowed the mint. Would you like another? Mr. Barrowman gestured towards the candy bowl again. Your work is guaranteed? It is, Mr. Barrowman smiled. Never have we had a complaint. But you're in the suicide business. Who's going to complain? Oh, such a nasty word. We try not to use it around the office, Mr. Barrowman said. Besides, our services extend far beyond self-termination. The act of suicide, as you have put it, is so hollow and lonely. One writes a note, picks up a gun, and does the deed, leaving a trail of sadness and even contempt in his wake. We reach beyond that, Dick. We believe that one can self-terminate and preserve one's dignity by leaving a legacy. You can't be serious. How can this be a legitimate business? Where did you hear about us? Mr. Barrowman arched one eyebrow. In a flight magazine on my way from Los Angeles. That demonstrates it. We are a service in demand. And I assure you, Dick, there's no mystery behind what we do. Soylent Green is not made of people, at least within the confines of my office. Mr. Barrowman laughed a few counterfeit chuckles at his well-rehearsed jest. Then his joviality fell away, and he leaned forward and spread his hands on the polished desktop. In all seriousness, Dick, have you come to me today to discuss a permanent solution to your problems, or would you rather seek some other form of help? Dick hunched down in his chair and looked at his hands. He turned them in his lap, exploring the wrinkles and scars, symbols of his life of misery. With those same hands, he had embezzled over $200,000 from his company, only to be caught by his supervisor and turned over to the police. With those hands, he had sat behind bars until his father, with his yogi bear body and silent, teared-up eyes, had come to bail him out. With those hands, just that morning, he had taken the framed photographs of his wife and two children, who no longer filled his house with their lovely noises, and threw them into the trash. Dick's days consisted of empty cells of time that passed him by one after the other. He sat numb in those cells, looking out a window into his yard, watching TV, listening to talk radio, waiting for his life to roll up like a parchment. Dick looked up from his hands at Mr. Barrowman. I'm ready. 
Mr. Barrowman's face lit up with a prosthetic-looking smile. Very good, Dick. I can't presume to understand your circumstances, but, may I say, by the look on your face, I think you are doing the right thing for both you and for your family. Mr. Barrowman sent Dick to the reception area to see Melanie, a twenty-something beauty with nearly perfect teeth and so much jewelry that she tinkled like a wind chime. She talked him through the financial particulars. Dick set up an auto draft on his bank account. Very little of the money was actually earned anyway. For $15,000, he chose the second most lavish legacy package LBI offered. Dick figured that if he was going to see this thing through, he might as well go for the Cadillac. Melanie directed Dick to a changing room where he dressed in a gray terry cloth robe. An attendant brought him into a suite, queen-size bed, kitchenette, coffee maker. Dick sat on the bed and looked at his shoes, a position he had assumed often over the past few weeks. A logo monogrammed on the tops of the slippers accompanied by the letters LBI stared up at him from the floor. Somewhere in the process, Dick had expected to feel a hint of regret, perhaps even some misgivings. But as he sat there looking at his slippers, he surprised himself. He felt resolute. He felt like Mr. Barrowman was probably right. The thing he was about to do probably was best for him and for his family. The sweet door opened. Mr. Barrowman strode in. Dick hadn't noticed, but Mr. Barrowman wore a brown Swedish knit suit, quite economical for the salary Mr. Barrowman probably made. He moved across the room and sat on the bed next to Dick. Are you ready, Dick? Mr. Barrowman rested a hand on Dick's knee. Dick looked up at Mr. Barrowman and smiled. I am. Let's do this. Very good, Mr. Barrowman said. Just as the brochure said, and as we tout in our moniker, we are in the legacy building business. We understand that in good faith you have paid us to ensure that your name will be remembered well after you have departed. The process is simple, but I have a couple of instructions for you. Mr. Barrowman reached into one of his suit coat pockets and brought out a pea-sized electronic device. He dropped it into Dick's hand. This is an earpiece. I want you to put it in now. Dick's eyebrows furrowed as he put the device in his ear. Mr. Barrowman raised his wrist and double-tapped his golden cufflink. Dick heard the thump of Mr. Barrowman's finger against a microphone. Can you hear me? Mr. Barrowman spoke into the cufflink. I can, Dick said. Very good. I want you to lie down and relax. Do you see those ports on the ceiling? Dick looked up. Several pipes emptied into the room, spaced equidistantly. When I leave this room, an odorless gas will flow through those pipes. The gas is a sleeping agent. All you have to do is lie back, relax, and let it happen. When you wake up, you will hear my voice. I will tell you exactly what to do. I can't reiterate this enough. You must follow my instructions to the letter, or you will jeopardize your legacy. Do you understand? Dick nodded. Very good. Mr. Barrowman patted Dick's wrist and winked. He stood from the bed and smiled down at Dick. You are doing the right thing for you and your family. Now, why don't you lie down and relax? Dick reclined onto the bed. The mattress accepted his weight with a gentle creak. He looked up at the ceiling, at the ports, that would soon pipe his end into the room. And sweet dreams, Mr. Barrowman said, then left the room, closing the door lightly behind him. Seconds later, a barely perceptible mist hissed into the room. Dick took in level breaths of the stuff. The effect of the gas, instantaneous, dispelled his sadness and fear. Dick closed his eyes and let himself go. The mist overtook him. He felt his consciousness slip. Then, he was asleep.
Melanie worked behind a large receptionist desk. The LBI logo fronted the desk, backlit with a blue fluorescent halo. Mr. Barrowman walked into the receptionist area, whistling something cheery. Melanie looked up at him, a pleasant smile creasing her face. Are we ready, Mr. Barrowman? Has Mr. Landry's finances cleared? Melanie checked her computer screen. They have, Mr. Barrowman. Fine, then, Mr. Barrowman smiled. Have the team prep him. We have thousands of miles to transport him before he wakes. Make sure Terry Plains accompanies him on the flight. He's our best anesthesiologist. In fact, I'm thinking about letting Mike Radford go after what happened last time. That's unfortunate, Melanie typed on her keyboard. I'll go ahead and text Terry. He should be en route to the airstrip in a few minutes. Mr. Barrowman patted Melanie's slender wrist. I simply couldn't do without you, Melanie. You're a peach. Thanks, Mr. Barrowman. Mr. Barrowman wheeled around and headed down the hall towards his office, whistling a Barry Manilow song. The cry of a jungle monkey woke Dick. He jostled up to a sitting position and looked around. He'd been sleeping on a tuft of matted foliage. The shrills of exotic birds filled the air. Dick had never been in the jungle. He hadn't imagined it being such a loud place. His pea-sized earpiece hissed to life. Good morning, Dick. This is Mr. Barrowman. I don't want you to speak. There's no need to alert the natives to any of our shenanigans. Dick looked around. At least 50 other men slept on the ground. They wore nearly nothing. Headbands. Wraps around their loins. Most were barefoot. The men surrounding you, Mr. Barrowman said, do not speak English. I have been careful to pick a culture that uses a language with the same inflections as you do to avoid the confusion of an accent. I'm going to recite a few syllables. I want you to repeat them exactly how you hear them. Here we go. Pay laka an ofar. Pay laka an ofar, Dick said. Very good. You're quite intelligent, Dick. A natural. What did I say? Please don't speak in English, Dick, or you may jeopardize your legacy. For your convenience, I will translate everything for you after you say it. You said, my name is Laka of the Swamp. Dick shook his head, still feeling groggy from the anesthesia. Mr. Barrowman went on. You will soon hear quite a cacophony coming from over the ridge just ahead of you. You've recently been adopted into the Onafar tribe. The rival, Analeki tribe, or People of the Sun, have nearly reached you. Now listen very carefully and follow my every directive. I want you to look towards your feet. There should be a flint dagger stabbed into the ground. Dick found the dagger. He pulled it out of the earth. It felt heavy, but well balanced for its crudity. The Aliki is the chosen weapon of the Onafar people. Don't drop it, or your new friends might lose their trust in you. Something rustled from over a nearby hill. Dick looked up through the brambles and vines to spot a large group of similarly dressed natives. They crept, their feet sideways, their centers of gravity low, their flint daggers and bows and arrows in front of them. What do I do? Dick said. One of the natives sleeping near him stirred. Remember, Dick, no English. You must follow my directives exactly. I want you to stand, but not to your full height. Keep a crouched stance, much like the approaching on Aleki are using. Dick stood, as instructed. I can only hear you. I can't see where you are, Dick, so what I need you to do is wait until the An Aleki are about 300 yards away. Then I want you to slap your skin and scream as loud as you can. It is essential that you wake up your entire group of warriors. Dick stood, hunched over, his flint dagger out in front. His heart beat quickly in his chest. His glands opened up and sent a stream of adrenaline through his system, stealing him, giving him new vigor. 
When the approaching natives advanced to within, according to Dick's best guess, a 300-foot perimeter, he slapped his skin and began to shout. Warriors all around him woke, snatching up their daggers from where they lay at their feet. Pushing up to their haunches, one by one, Dick's tribe spotted the approaching warriors. They seemed afraid, their eyes wide as they communicated to one another with a series of low whoops. Excellent, Mr. Barrowman's voice said into Dick's ear. Everything seems to be going well. The Anofar, your tribe, Dick, is much smaller than the Aleki, so your people are terrified. It's your job to help them understand that although they are scared, they have the help of the great yellow god on their side. Dick wiped a sheen of sweat from his forehead with the back of his arm. Now listen carefully. I need you to walk out in front of your tribe. You need to stand between them and the Aleki. Terrified, Dick obeyed Mr. Barman's instructions, placing one foot in front of the other, trying to emulate the liquid motion of the approaching natives. Step by step, he moved away from his tribe. Mr. Barman went on. Now, turn to your tribe. They should be looking at you in awe and wonder at this point. You really are quite brave, Dick. Some of the fear melted away from the faces of Dick's group of warriors. They seemed to find strength in his resolve. Now... Repeat exactly what I say, using the same inflections. I will translate as I go. Alam al-o-aleki! Dick repeated the words. His fellow tribesmen listened, stealing themselves, seeming less afraid with each of Dick's words. Mr. Barrowman gave Dick more words to say in the strange language, translating them as he went. Do not fear, my brothers. Today is a great day. A day in which we gather to fight for things greater than us. Today we fight for our land, for our wives, and for our children. Do not fear the people of the sun, for we are strong. The great yellow god also shines on the swamp, giving us the blood of the plants and the toughness of the soil. With our oneness, with the elements, and the strength of the earth, we are destined to stand victorious this day. Dick's warriors hung on every word, striking their chests with the flats of their daggers, whooping and grunting. The advancing enemy slowed their advance. They had lost the element of surprise. Mr. Barrowman continued his instructions. Now what I'm going to ask you to do is considered taboo by your people. However, in context, they will see it as a symbol of strength. Don't feel alarmed if there is a sudden sense of insecurity or aggression among your tribe. Dick nodded. Listen carefully. I want you to stand up to your full height. Dick complied. As he righted himself, his group of warriors seemed suddenly afraid, cowering, covering their eyes. Some jabbed towards Dick with their daggers. Raise your dagger to the sky. Dick pushed his flint blade up to the top of his reach and looked up into the canopy of trees above his head. His warriors broke into a din of yowls, cries, and moans. Now, Say these words precisely as I enunciate them, Mr. Barrowman said. Pay Aleki on ono ono atiwa. I am the Avenger. I am the Avatar of the Great Yellow God. Dick repeated the words. The natives around him burst into a clamor of cheers and shouts. They stomped on the earth. They punched the ground. They slapped themselves on the chests and thighs. Mr. Barrowman's voice cut through all the clamor directly into Dick's ear. Very good, Dick. You've done it. Now is your moment. I want you to turn and run at the Analeki. Engage them with your dagger. Try to kill as many as possible. Fight for your people's independence, Dick. Fight to help them break the shackles of bondage and to end their yearly tribute of two-thirds of their yield to the feathered god of the Analeki. 
Dick took two deep breaths, then ran. He ran like he had never run before. He cut through the jungle like an animal, screaming, slapping his flint dagger against his chest. He leaned into his momentum, filling his lungs with the dank, wet jungle air. He heard the shouts of his fellow warriors behind him as they advanced, their bodies lithe and strong. The two tribes collided. Dick buried his dagger into the chest of one of the An-Aleki. The man fell by his hand. Dick felt invigorated, impassioned. Then, an explosion of pain overtook him. Something hit him in the side, just below the ribs. He looked down to see an arrow jutting from his oblique. Something came unhinged inside of him. He sensed the inordinate flow of blood. He knew, in that instant, that it was time to die. Dick lied down on the ground, unable to run anymore. He looked up into the entanglement of vines and branches. The battle raged all around him. Warriors leapt over him, stabbing, feigning, fighting for their lives, for their independence. Dick's vision began to fade, going dark at the edges first, but closing slowly like an iris. At the instant before his vision finally blacked out, he heard Mr. Barrowman's voice in his ear. Very good, Dick. You've done well. Your legacy will live on in the oral history of the Anofar. Can I bother you with a last request? What is it? Dick asked, struggling to keep air moving through his collapsing lung. I'd like an endorsement. Can you give me a testimonial for LBI's flawless service record? Dick swallowed hard, tasting blood and bile in his throat. I'd like to thank LBI for their impeccable service. I could have killed myself and left nothing but a note. But LBI... Dick swallowed just enough air to finish his sentence. But with LBI, I have left a legacy. Perfect, Dick. It has been a pleasure doing business with you. Dick found the strength to utter two last words. Thank you. The lights went out. This has been... Legacy Builders Incorporated, written and read by Craig Nibo. Legacy Builders Incorporated appears in the anthology Terrifying Lies, the namesake of this podcast. As I recall, the anthology features at least two stories that deal with suicide. I'm not sure what got into me during that period to inspire such sullen material. On that subject, all I can say is, should you ever find yourself in a place dark enough to consider ending it all, don't do it. Your friends. Those in your past, those in your present, and those in your future need you. The world needs your voice. Don't deny us the beauty and nuances that only you can offer as a unique individual. Kill the Child, written and read by Craig Nibo. Millions of sunflowers stared at me, each with its single eye dark and accusing, as I pulled up to the ruined farmhouse at the edge of what must have been at least 100 acres of crop. I've never understood the appeal of sunflower seeds. Too much work. All that cracking in your teeth and messy spitting. I parked my car on the P-Stone gravel pullout, dilapidated house, and made my way to the front door, screwing my fedora even tighter down on my head and checking the bulge under my left arm, where I kept my gun. The front door swung open, even before I had a chance to knock. The woman standing behind it glanced up at me with a spent-out stare. She looked me up and down, then pushed a few wisps of hair back from her face with one hand while hitching a wayward strap on her filthy dress up onto her shoulder with the other. She must have either been baking berry pies or slaughtering an animal, judging by the stains on the front of her dress. Kept my eyes up on the level, locked on her face. Suppose you came for her, the woman said. Couldn't have known whom I had come for. Not really, but I couldn't help but believe that part of her knew all along that I, or someone like me, 
would eventually come. I opened my mouth to say something, but she turned and moved into the darkness of the house before I could get a word out. I followed her inside, letting the rotten screen door slam on its screaming hinges behind me. As I followed her through the house, I felt relieved to smell the confectioner's scent of fresh baked pies. Baking, not slaughtering. She'd kept the place clean. The whole leaning building would probably just fall down around her without warning someday, but at least she picked up after herself. She led me through the dank kitchen and out onto a back patio, tick-ridden turtle shell that threatened to cave in under my weight. In the backyard, sitting on a tire swing, dangling from an old length of hemp, I saw the child. With nobody to push her, she just sat there, motionless, facing away from me, hunched over the tire, her gunny dress draping around her like a forgotten towel. And there was that hair, just like in the case file that I'd found on my desk, corn silk white, flicking in the breeze, smoldering in the light of the dying sun, all innocent and free. Damn, didn't want to stain that hair with blood. The thought of all that gore made me think of... Berry pies. Been there all day, the woman said. Just sits there most of the time. Says narrow word. Put my hand over the gun. It sat like a steel heart under my bat wing lapel. Your friend told me you's coming, she said. Said not to watch what you had planned for. She flicked a horse fly away from her face. Ward of the state, she is. The woman inclined her head toward the child. But I have no stomach for the business the likes of you conduct. If it's just the same to you, I think I'll take your friend's advice and stay inside while you do what it is you've come to do. My friend? I asked, feeling my blood take the fast lane. Yeah, she said, flicking another insect, this one imaginary. The feller in the white car. One of those chop tops. Damn, I said, across the backyard to the child. I turned the tire swing around so I could see her face, cherubic, except for the eyes. They glared back at me like chalk. No irises, no pupils. I knew the girl couldn't see, not the way we do at least. Child, can you hear me? She opened her mouth. A streamer of saliva rainbowed between her lips then popped apart. She uttered something guttural. It was all I was going to get from her. A car crunched up along the pea stone in front of the house. I whipped around just in time to see the tail fins of a white, chop-topped 68 Cadillac pass out of view, obscured by the leaning wreck of a house. Damn, I said. I reached under my lapel and drew my gun. I glanced back at the woman. She stared at the ground, possibly finding a grasshopper, an odd-shaped stone, something uninteresting on which to focus her attention. Guess I'd best be letting you and your friend get to your business. Suppose you can have a piece of pie when you're done. She let her shoulder sag. The wayward strap of her dress fell to her upper arm. She went back into the house. I moved around the girl, putting her between the farmhouse and me, keeping my gun aimed at the ground, safety off. I waited for him. When he walked around the corner of the farmhouse, he wore a smile. He took off his hat and wiped his sweaty face with the sleeve of his expensive suit. Hoo-wee! Ain't it hot today? He said, what are you doing here? Sometimes I like to show up and watch, that's all. It ain't complicated. He spotted my gun, aimed at the ground, and ready to roar. Let's not get all stupid on this, son, what do you say? He said. A tracer of sweat broke free and crawled down my cheek. I felt the rebuking stare of a million sunflowers on me. 
I swallowed hard. The man sniffed at the air and closed his eyes. His smile told me he found something sensuous there in the breeze. He opened his eyes and looked me up and down, keeping the smile. But I knew that his smile was loaded like a weapon. Well, why don't you get it underway? I suddenly got a hankering for berry pie, the man said, mopping at his forehead with his sleeve again. Damn, ain't it hot? I raised my gun to the child's head. She turned her blank face up toward me. boy. now do your job. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know, I said, trying to sound strong, hating the stutter in my voice. What do you mean you, do, you don't know? You turning into porky pig or something with all that da don't da don't da don't that's all folks stuff? <laughs> he chuckled long and hard, slipping a hand under his lapel as he laughed. I fired. I imagined the woman jumping, startled by the deafening report of my gun, even from the inside of the house. Someday I would get a quieter weapon. The girl's head cocked to the side toward the man who'd finished drawing his gun from beneath his jacket. The man leveled his gun at me, but something had gone wrong. He raised his empty hand up in a gesture that appeared to be supplication. Then he unloaded his revolver as quickly as his finger could pull the trigger. I leapt at the girl, knocking her out of the tire swing. We both hit the ground hard beneath the oak tree. She felt almost skeletal underneath me. I craned my neck around and looked at the man. He fired wild, popping shots off at random into the sky more concerned about the bleeding from where my bullet had entered his chest and in taking a proper aim. I waited for him to empty his revolver. I stood up. The child lay on the ground like a bundle of loose cordwood beneath me. I aimed at the fallen man ran the six steps it took to reach him. He lay on the ground fighting for each syrupy breath. I leveled my gun at his face and waited for him to speak. Didn't seem right for anyone to die. Even the man in the white Cadillac Without uttering some kind of final eulogy, I didn't want to kill him, but I knew he couldn't walk away from this. You're selling us out, you know that? The man said. It's not right to kill the child. She's not a child. You know what she will become. Yes, but right now she's a child. I pulled the trigger. A hole appeared in the man's head. Gore splattered on the grass beneath him. I don't think he died a painful death. When I turned around, the woman stood on the dilapidated patio holding herself, perhaps against those damn staring sunflowers. Not sure if you've done right, she said. I moved over to the child. I bent down and hoisted her up into my arms. She weighed nothing, like her bones were hollow. I looked at the woman for a long moment, trying to find the right words to say. Someone will be along for the body shortly. I flicked my eyes toward the man, crumpled on the crabgrass and clover. I thought I smelled vomit. I carried the child to my car, placed her on the black leather back seat, mildly concerned that the sun had heated the leather to the point of discomfort. She didn't seem to mind. I fired up the V8 and left the dilapidated house at Sunflowers behind. I held the child cradled like a baby in my arms when Eileen answered the door. 
Another one? She asked. Do you have room? She sighed, a long, forlorn breath. She'll need new clothes. I have a hundred dollars. Bring her into the living room. I followed her into the house. She cleared away some clutter from a second-hand couch. A black-and-white television set spewed the cold dialogue from the Maltese Falcon from its tinny speaker. I took a moment to watch Humphrey Bogart command the screen in the remarkable way that he always does. Bogart reminded me of the man that I had left bleeding back at the dilapidated house. Someone would come for the man. They hadn't already. And after they scraped him up from the woman's backyard, after they cleaned up the mess and finished off the woman, they'd come for me. Put her here, Eileen said, tapping the couch with a hand. I lowered the child to the couch. I put a throw pillow under her head. Something rustled behind me. I turned and spotted two children, a boy and a girl, their eyes white from birth, sightless, yet seeming to stare at me. The children stood on a grand staircase, fronted by a wrought iron banister. How are they? I asked. Well, Eileen rubbed the child's hands, trying to bring warmth to them. They hardly make a peep. I bent down and kissed Eileen, a solitary peck. She almost smiled. What was that for? I don't know, I shrugged. They found me out. Eileen sighed again, something she did well. She looked up at me. I always thought her eyes looked like pennies, but I couldn't tell her that. So you won't be back? I pursed my lips and tried to find the right words to say. They didn't come to me. One way or the other, you won't see me again. I'll care for them, she said, glancing over her shoulder at the other children. I'll care for them as long as I can. Just like the man I'd left on the lawn back at the dilapidated house. Just like me, Eileen knew what the children would eventually become. But for now, they were just children. I kissed her again. I couldn't help it. This time, she kissed me back. After midnight, I gave Eileen my hundred dollars and left her house. I knew that I wouldn't see her again. I drove through the night, all the way to Denver. Somewhere between Wichita and Salina, I tossed my gun out the window. Somewhere between Salina and Hayes, I finally stopped weeping. This has been Kill the Child, written and read by Craig Nibo. Kill the Child was originally published in an anthology called The Crimson Pact, Volume 5. I've thought a lot about this story over the years. There's more there. Maybe, someday, I'll head back into this world and write more about these characters. For today's song, I give you another selection from my upcoming musical, Tesla vs. Cthulhu. I'm planning to kickstart it soon, although I haven't set a launch date yet. I'd be thrilled if you'd consider backing it. You can learn more and leave your email address so I can notify you of the Kickstarter date by visiting craignibo.com. In this song, three witch sisters, cultists of Cthulhu, sing about how they have almost reached their goal of summoning their old god to overthrow the earth. The tune is called Glory in the Kingdom of Cthulhu. And we're almost 
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. Thank you.